Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. Please consider becoming a donor to make almost all of our media content free and available to everyone at patreon.com slash empirefiles. Our digital era provides the world's information at our fingertips. But despite this vast arena of streaming platforms, news outlets, and media figures, corporate media propaganda and censorship reign supreme. Through the multitude of choices to filter this knowledge, exists a limited parameter of acceptable debate, contingent on the conventional wisdom of U.S. democracy, capitalism, and imperialism. This infotainment-driven media culture not only reinforces toxic myth-making, but breeds hyper-partisanship and cultivates a cycle of outrage that is completely disconnected from the core problems that tens of millions of Americans share. Instead of using social media to understand each other, Social media algorithms reinforce our biases and make us more prone to cast out those we may have minor disagreements with. At a time when we need to organize with each other to fight for the future we know is possible, many of us are screaming into the void, atomized and alienated, feeling more hopeless than ever. Project Censored's Mickey Huff and Nolan Higdon are seeking to reverse these alarming trends by fostering something we seem to have lost sight of, constructive dialogue. Their new book, Let's Agree to Disagree, encourages healthy communication skills through critical thinking and media literacy. The text brings us back to the basic tools we all need to better our conversations and broaden our perspectives. I got a chance to sit down with Mickey and Nolan to talk about the state of the media landscape, the insidiousness of corporate media propaganda, and how we can cultivate these important skills moving forward. Mickey Huff, Nolan Higdon, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on the Empire Files podcast. Thanks for having us. So one, you know, we're going to talk about your joint book that you guys uh, are putting out called Let's Agree to Disagree, a pretty novel concept right? <laughs> in a time of hyper-partisan divide, uh, something that wouldn't seem controversial, but is more and more, you know, as as we continue to become more and more averse to talking to each other, to trying to bridge the divide, to try to reach a, a level playing field or perhaps a level plane of reality that we can all agree on to, to build upon. So one of the facts, I guess, that stuck out to me right at the beginning of the book, you guys, was just how much the average American spends consuming media, you know, and I'm always really alarmed whenever I get the notification from my phone. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, how is it possible that I've done, that I've spent this much time? Like I have a child. Good God. What is wrong with me? It's like really, really a, a, an insane kind of mirror every week when you get that notification. But it is really disturbing to realize that the majority of your waking life, you are inundated with corporate media propaganda. Yeah, no, that's um, the reality for, for Americans certainly. And, um, we we often don't talk enough about how much that influences us. Um, even those the, those of us who are aware of corporate media are susceptible to some of these messages. It starts to to shape our reality, and that's why even though Mickey and I wrote this book as a way to have more constructive dialogue, we, we knew we had to talk about the media because so many people engage in dialogue um, from a perspective that is shaped by those media narratives. And so you really need to disentangle yourself from those to make effective or constructive dialogue possible. Yeah, you know, Abby, we, you know, at Project Censored, we really focus on what corporate media aren't covering. 
um, we, we, we certainly spend a lot of time with media on media, whether it's big tech platforms, social media, anti-social media. You know, one of the things that I think it's really interesting that you pointed out that uh, our tethering vice tells us exactly how addicted we are um, and, and how much time we're, we're wasting. Um, but if you look at it from, this, from the standpoint of those projecting the messages, that's time that they get free to propagandize us. Uh, we're giving uh, them our attention, our data, our time. Um, in, in many ways, we're tacitly giving them our consent because no one's forcing us to be on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter 12 hours a day. Um, and, and I would argue those act as echo chambers for what we see in the big six corporations that control most of the media anyway. And that's something that um, you know, we talk a lot about, well, 50% of people are getting news from Facebook and 10% of young people under 24 get news from TikTok. What we don't spend time doing is how much of that information is all just rehashed, right? And how much of it is repetition, confirmation, bias, hyperpartisan echo chamber kind of messaging. You know, and I was reminded of this, you know, um, late April, Matt Taibbi, the independent journalist, put together a really great um, video montage and it was just called Weapons. You may have seen it. It was six minutes of corporate media coverage about why the media has an obligation to constantly put the idea of arming Ukraine and this war is not to be forgotten. And it went through and showed about a half a dozen different quote unquote experts, all of whom were from the military industrial complex, from Raytheon, from um, you know different um, you know national security systems or surveillance companies, not one of them was identified. Not one single person that was an expert from private industry or had revolving door went to work for government was identified in the corporate media as an employee or a lobbyist for the military industrial complex. Not one. And the message is clear: it was nonstop war and weapons. And they even were admitting the anchors, the news readers, if you will, the presenters who masquerade as journalists, they were even saying that this was their job. Their job was to keep this issue in front of the American public. And so they're admitting forthrightly, just like the Biden administration and their disinformation governance board, they're basically just admitting. And again, it's on pause right now. Winston Smith will be back after the next few messages um, from our, our sponsors at the military industrial complex. Uh, they'll be back for us. So this is really in your face. And so one of the things Nolan and I really hope to achieve in this book was by calling attention to what we already see as obvious, right? Because part of the challenge is, is that because we study media, it seems obvious to us. We were curious as to how obvious it was to other people. And, and interestingly enough, a lot of people really do understand that the media is propaganda and they really do understand that they're not being told what's happening, which is why they're moving away from corporate media in droves. No one wrote about the CNN plus fiasco, you know, more like CNN minus, um, that it's, it's, not, it's not the medium, it's the message. It's the message of corporate media that people are beginning to understand is propaganda and is, is basically heavily curated and censored. But now is the time that we have to step up and support independent sources because we have to have other places for people to go. So part of what Nolan and I hope to achieve in the book is not just about how to mitigate conflicts and communicate effectively with one another, which we, we need a lot of help with, but we also want people to understand media, understand the political economy of the digital era, 
And we want to give people the tools, so to speak, so that they can deconstruct this, understand it, and make wise choices about the media they watch on their own, right? We want to practice what we teach. We're not preachers, right? We want to help people understand these things on their own. Exactly. I mean, I think that you bring up several salient points. I want to talk about the war in Ukraine because I think it reveals something very important about the power of mass media propaganda. And it's not just, even though this is a very insidious facet of it, as you just outlined, the military contractors and former intelligence officials who are cycled through on these panels over and over again and never disclosing, you know, who these people are, what investments they have, what conflicts of interest they have. Then you have the subsidization of corporate media by the military industrial complex that you have advertisements before and after these programs of Raytheon. It's like, I'm not buying a missile launcher, right? I'm not buying, I'm not in the market for a tank. So like, what, what is this? Is this just exerting its power, kind of reminding us who controls society. And I guess, Nolan, comment on just that, like the fact that it's so in your fucking face when you're watching some of these corporate media outlets or you're reading something like The Economist or The Washington Post and you actually see something on the bottom, you know, sponsored by Lockheed Martin or something like that, like just how bizarre that is, but also how it, it bleeds into every aspect of society, like just the cultivation of and let's just call it what it is. It's manufactured outrage. And if it wasn't manufactured, then we'd have the same outrage across the board for every war because war isn't a novel concept. It's continuous. So comment on just this, the war in Ukraine, like what you've been seeing as a media analyst and also just the notion of the military industrial complex, like put, like really overtly positioning itself in, in the news like that. Yeah, well, this is this is unfortunately where I say like one of the most boring things I always say in interviews. Like, unfortunately, it's nothing new. Um, this is you know I've seen this unfortunately play out multiple times in my life. But um, I you know I, I joked months before um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine about how like I didn't know I was in a country of so many Afghanistan experts. Um, when <laughs> Biden pulled the troops out, everybody had an opinion. Everybody knew what the right or wrong move was. I was like, that's amazing. You guys were so silent on this issue for 20 years, but now these experts are coming out from all facets of social media and elsewhere. Um, the same thing kind of happened in Russia and Ukraine. Um, and I, I think it speaks to the power of media to set the agenda. Um, like you pointed out, Abby, we could have outrage about a multitude of things. I would prefer to see this type of outrage about, right, in our society. But instead, um, we focus on these foreign affairs through this very narrow lens that the military industrial complex um, uses to shape the, the news narratives. And much like I saw when I was sort of developing my political identity in, in the run up to the um, 2003 invasion of Iraq, it was like this, nas this national psychosis uh, took over um, when Russia invaded Ukraine. I, I saw people have like flags everywhere and standing with Ukraine and they're getting rid of the Moscow mule. And I'm like, well, what do you actually know about the topic? What do you know about the context? What do you know about the region? Like, I, you know, to, to me, there's a lot more information I would need. You don't have to be an expert on on everything. Sometimes it's okay to say, I just don't know. Um, and we, media does not encourage to do that. Media encourages us to, to jump on the bandwagon and, and virtue signal your support for this group or that group uh, without actually getting any real evidence or analysis. We, we have no debate in this country about what's going on um, with, with Ukraine and, and Russia. And I know this isn't probably where your question was going, but you know, that's why RT America was was important. It gave us some other perspective. You, know, you can critique it all you want, um, but it gave us some other perspective. And, and it disappeared at a time when I think it would have been useful. You know, while we're going to war, I would like to hear some anti-war voices 
penetrate through legacy media where so many um, voters are unfortunately getting their, their media, but that was just gone. Well, it's so bizarre that, you know, this mass censorship would be called for at a time when it, it probably is the most important time to hear what Russian media is saying. <laughs> you know, I mean, I want to hear what Putin's explanation is for all this that I'm being told by Western media that he's this belligerent, evil, maniacal madman, you know? Okay. So let's hear from him. What is going on? What, what is he actually saying? Because then it instructs us of how diplomacy can be engaged with instead of just this cartoonish binary of good and evil. And then of course, it's just totally emotional and you can't ever discern what is going on. And so it's this super abstract thing that then can, of course, can be easily exploited and weaponized. The mass censorship that just happened in light of the Ukraine uh, invasion is so extreme, you guys. And it's such a slippery slope. It is so disturbing to me that this was egged on, cheerleaded for, and it has profound implications because as we know, once you do this, it doesn't just stop at Russian media. It continues and it continues to consolidate the already severely limited parameters parameters of debate that we've seen. I mean, Mickey, comment on just this wave of censorship. It's a massive massive wave of censorship by proxy, right? The federal government doesn't have to step in and say, um, we don't want RT America on the air, although they've been saying that for years in various ways. And you know this firsthand with your show that YouTube memory hold and Roku and DirecTV disappeared access to these channels. The federal right, government- They've been itchy to do this for a long time, right? They've been itchy oh, to yeah. do this with the labeling, yeah, with these algorithmic censorship. And finally, they were like, let's just wipe it out, baby. And they've been cranking up the Russia-phobia knob to a spinal tap 11 for, you know, close to eight years anyway. Um, so this is all coming. We wrote about this in the United States of Distraction. We wrote about how the Democratic Party kind of turned Russia-phobia into a cottage industry with the impeachment movement of Trump, the Mueller report, uh, Rachel Maddow every single night. I mean, how many times that person was discredited from bogus reports of Russia, the Washington Post and their proper not fear mongering. And I mean, it goes it goes back to the 2016 before that, actually, with Ukraine and Biden, Obide, uh, the Obama Biden administration. But this censorship by proxy is really an insidious thing. The federal government doesn't need to put its big weight behind anything and say, well, we're 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 now going to say that Russia is uh, an enemy of the state and we can't have any information coming from there. We're going to shut down all channels of Russian media. In other words, we could have done what Putin did. We could have said you're going to go to jail for 15 years if you mention the word war or invasion. Um, You know, we could have went full blown, full authoritarian. But in the United States, we like the soft gloves, right? We like the soft cage. Um, we like the nanny state. We like to be we like to be protected, but not dictated to, right? In other words, at, at paging Eddie Bernays, we like to be cajoled uh, into loving our Huxleyan servitude, right? As it were. Um, but this means that you know the big cable companies and the big tech companies. There's a revolving door of people from the Democratic Party in particular that have gone to work, whether it's the Clintons or the Obamas or whomever, that have gone to work for for companies like Meta or Alphabet and what have you. Um, I mean, take a look at the person that was just appointed to be you know the so-called disinformations are. I mean, these are ideological hacks. You know, these are party apparatchiks. Um, they don't need to be told what to do. They know what to do. 
And so censorship by proxy means the government doesn't have to step in and say anything because the talking heads at these networks all know what the narrative is. And save for Fox News, which is, you know, well over half of the time, pretty unhinged and kind of deranged and disconnected from reality. Um, But the rest of the corporate media is kind of lockstep behind the war efforts uh, in Ukraine, and they've been admitting it all along. Um, So it's not even subtle. Meanwhile, a Palestinian American journalist gets shot in the face in cold blood. um, And, and, you know, the New York Times has to say, well, they died or they were killed. Um, You know, they they have to investigate. Uh, I mean, it's just absolutely riveting the degree of propaganda that exists in the United States and the degree of censorship that is required right, for these corporations to willingly participate in this, right, without having to have an official meeting and without having the Biden, uh, the Biden administration say, now, now, stay on message. And that's what we think is a really more problematic kind of censorship. And then, of course, we have what happens online, whether it's bots, AI, shadow banning, um, deplatforming. And now PayPal and the financial services companies are getting involved when they're going to financially strangle these independent anti, let's be here very clear. These are anti-imperialist, anti-war news outlets like Consortium News, Mint Press News uh, that are also being silenced. And that's not at all by accident. And, and we should and, speak up against it at every turn. And if I can add some of that real quick too, um, the, the pressure that's exerted sometimes, it's not even that you just know, it's there's direct pressure. I mean, there was direct pressure on PayPal to take away funds from WikiLeaks over a decade ago. Uh, Mark Warner, um, a senator, he carries around a white paper that threatens regulations for big tech. So if Mark Warner says, like, we need to remove this person or this ideology from the platform, big tech does it because they know that the clear threat is they'll be regulated. Or when like AOC came out and is asking to remove um, folks after January 6th, she's in the house. The house has the ability to um, investigate the finances of these companies and individuals. So there's, there's real threats that are made when, when these public statements are made to these companies. And then these companies will uh, act under that pressure and censor That's censorship by proxy. That that's basically being coerced or pressured into doing something at the behest of government, but then they hide behind the, Hey, I'm a, we're, these are private companies. They're not censoring. Yeah. And that's the most frustrating talking point of all, because it's like, look, this is the public commons. This argument has been made. It could have been made 20 years ago. Uh, how dare you try to make that today as, you know, so many people are a part of this and it really has replaced so many modes of communication and a forum of, you know, engagement. Um, but, you know, you you bring up so many points that are so important and that's, you know, one of them is just the fact that people have this institutional distrust of the political system and of course the media. And I think that that has been, you know, obviously there's so many factors that go into that. You could argue the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, all the things that we've been lied to that have been proven over and over again, but it's so strange that mass censorship is what you know, primarily the liberal establishment is calling for. We could argue all day, you know, we could get into BDS laws and stuff. I know that there's obviously Republicans doing um, censorship on a state level and the black end of the government's coming down to black out certain speech. But it does seem like the tech overlords working with primarily Democratic politicians that are calling for this kind of algorithmic censorship, expelling, you know, unsavory viewpoints like QAnon or people who are simply dissenting. I mean, this isn't just Russian media, as we've seen in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is people like Scott Ritter, Pablo Escobar, people who are literally just saying 
what maybe people in Russian media would say. So it's really towing a line that is not approved. And it's not just your affiliation with these so-called adversary media organizations. So it is getting very scary, very dark. Um, But why do you think, along with the fact that we have access to so much information and there's this institutional distrust, why do you think there isn't a reflexive kind of notion that we do need critical media literacy? And instead you see kind of a deep dive into a mass dysfunction. And that that is getting wider and wider. This alienation that is breeding actual magical thinking. Magical thinking is resonating much more today as we have more information than ever. Maybe that is the reason, but it seems like people are losing more and more of a grip on reality um, and, and kind of devolving into more crisis cult mentality. I would, yeah, I would really, I think it's a great, a great question. And I think um, we talk about in the book and I think this still unfortunately stands. Um, we've, we have normalized a hyper-partisan culture and it's really hard to disentangle ourselves from it. So you brought up the, the censorship that conservatives have long done, right? The, the list of professors who hate America or the BDS laws or the infiltration of anti-war groups, um, all these kinds of things, right? Conservatives were largely silent on that stuff. You know, I remember being, uh, you know, a young lefty and being called every every uh, unpatriotic name they could come up with because I said, like, look, this is just wrong. Uh, you can't censor people. Then, then flip it around and the Democrats start working with big tech to get rid of Trump and white supremacist groups. And conservatives are outraged. and They're, they're wondering where the liberals are. In both cases, I think um, folks are correct. You know, this should be a bipartisan issue we, we should agree upon. Um, I, I will say, and uh, just to, to add to this conversation, that we often talk about Democrats censoring Trump and January 6th folks in the digital age, and that's true. But we often ignore how many um, leftists have gotten censored in that as well. So, you know, we know the Critical Media Literacy Conference, the Americas that we hosted has gotten censored. We know the demonetization of places like Mint Press News and folks like that. We know the shadow banning of Counterpunch and Consortium News, et cetera. Um, so it's also leftists who are getting attacked as well. And, it, it and just, Empire Files. And Empire Files. <laughs> uh-huh. And Empire Files. And breaking uh, that. <laughs> I, figure, I figured we had an insider who could, uh, who could <laughs> confirm that for us. Well, but Nolan, uh, where did this come? Where did this hyperpartisan divide come from? Because in the book, it outlines how this wasn't really, this didn't really define American society before like the 90s, right? Yeah, it was a, a really big product of the, the 90s. Um, one, it had to do with the kind of... Um, Political styles of the Republicans in the 80s and 90s tried to divide the nation into a good versus evil narrative. Um, but more so than that, it was really perpetuated by media. Um, the advent of, of cable news um, fractured audiences and news outlets changed their model in the 90s rather than trying to capture the largest audience possible. They tried to capture one demographic and maximize it. Um, this was made worse by the digital age because now you subscribe to like the New York Times or Washington Post. So they try and capture one demographic and maximize it. And unfortunately, the way you capture demographics, whether it be legacy media or social media, um, is you write stories that appeal to fear and uh, fear and anger. You confirm their existing bias. Um, you make a character of the other side who is evil and you make the reader seem reader, or watcher, viewer seem like the good guy. And 30 years of that, you know, we have a nation of people whose number one fear is other Americans. Um, They're unable to talk to other Americans because they have the worst character of this person in their mind. 
Um, thanks to digital technologies, we rarely have to actually interact with people we disagree with. So we don't actually have to confront um, these folks at any level. And it contributes to the very problems you're talking about. When we talk about censorship. Um, if you're a lefty, you, you think about um, you know, censoring this evil Trumpers. And if you're a, a conservative, you think about censoring like these credentialed elite Hillary's. And we never get into the, to the nuance of what's actually going on with issues like this. You know, Abby, we go back a long ways in this country demonizing the other, right? We've, we've long had these identitarian things happening on, on some level. Some, you know, sometimes they boil to the surface. Other times they kind of go underneath. But we've consistently been anti-immigrant for a nation of immigrants. We've been consistently anti-labor for a country built by workers. Um, you, you can just keep going anti-women. We've been anti-women forever. Here we are again, you know, back to the dark ages. Um, so it's interesting that these things have long been under the surface and they bubble up from time to time. But what Nolan was pointing out that bears repeating is what we wrote about in the United States of Distraction and it became the genesis for this book, Let's Agree to Disagree, was the last book ended with a chapter called Make America Think Again. In other words, I mean, I guess it presupposes that we were thoughtful once upon a time in the United States, <laughs> but we'll let that go momentarily. But the idea is, is that we can, if we put our minds to it, we can communicate, we can understand, we don't have to agree that it's a post-truth world and anything goes. Um, there are uh, basic guidelines for what a fact is and isn't. Um, there are ethical guidelines for journalism, you know, society of professional journalists. Um, this stuff isn't rocket science. We know these things, but because we've become more and more media saturated, What's happened is, is that coming out of the culture wars of the 50s and 60s with the Cold War, the free speech movement, the civil rights movement, the beginnings of the LGBTQIA plus movements, all these things. In the 70s, there was a massive pushback among the right wing, the chambers of commerce, the business community, um, real estate, etc. All these groups kind of got together and they were like, what's happening? Right. The wasps were losing control of the culture. Right. And they blamed campuses and colleges and pointy headed liberal professors and these types. And so they mobilized and they said, we're going to have our own think tanks. We're going to have our own colleges. We're going to have our own media and we're going to hijack the evangelical moral majority. And we're going to use components of these groups that are already into otherness. And we're going to harness that and we're going to create Republican Jesus Right. He's not like the Jesus that, you know, from before that likes to give a helping hand and hangs out with prostitutes and uh, degenerates and wants to heal people. This is this is the new and improved. Um, uh, this is the new imperialist Jesus, the anti-immigrant Jesus. This is the the banker Jesus that doesn't overturn the lending table. Uh, Jesus comes up with redlining strategies to uh, have Israeli apartheid of Palestine. Right. Um, but this was a calculated move. And the Reagan administration really put into place a lot of these kinds of policies. They rolled back the fairness doctrine. Clinton came in moving to the center right, right, wanting to recapture the moneyed class, had the Telecom Act of 96, NAFTA. I mean, this was the neoliberal sort of centering center right of the entire culture that basically was a, it's a shift. It was a culture shift that we saw taking place. And big tech got its big boom in the 90s. And then, of course, you know, along came 9-11. And 9-11 gave the national security state all the reason it needed to move in 
big tech surveillance, massive wars that you wouldn't have seen before because they lacked any real justification, right? Why were we in Afghanistan for 20 years? And again, Nolan just pointed out, everybody who's an expert on Afghanistan, now, now they're on Ukraine. It's like, we should have basic rules. If you don't know what NATO stands for, you can't support the war. If you, and I mean just the acronym, not the politics, right? That's even going further. If you can't find Ukraine on the map, you can't support the, you know, its war efforts. Um, this is a real problem because we have a profound set of now hyper-partisan-based ignorance that sort of, you know, Stephen Colbert joked about with truthiness, and now here we are with post-truth, like a real thing, where this is where our culture has been heading. And that's why we warned in USOD is that we've been heading here as a culture. We, we don't teach media literacy. We don't teach news literacy. We don't foster healthy debate and disagreement. In fact, Let's Agree to Disagree is the title of this book we just did. We were getting attacked for it before the book even came out because people were attacking the book title. They were attacking the cover of the book before they have any idea what the argument even is. So that should show you where we are as a culture, right? Is that people don't even want to take what time it is to hear what someone's position is or what the evidence is. They're just already reacting in their own minds to why well, they're right and you're wrong no matter what. Well, Mickey, for as long as I can remember, I was told don't talk about politics and religion at the dinner table. That's like the big mantra that that guides us all in this country. And it's just ludicrous. Like, wait a minute, we're not supposed to talk about these things that dominate and control you know, most aspects of our lives, the Curious fundamental message. ideologies that are driving society like, nope, they're taboo. They're taboo. I mean, it's really trippy when you think about that. And so we are now we're at a point now because of the echo chamber and the algorithms feeding us what we want to see. We're like confidently confident in our ignorance. I just want to walk um, listeners through the era that we're talking about and how we got here, because you guys are of the generation previous to me. You know, people who are much younger than me today can't even envision a world a world with privacy, first of all, but a world where news wasn't 24 seven, like that, that wasn't just a dominating, overwhelming force where you feel like the more you look at the more, the less you're in the know, almost it's kind of by design where before it was just like you, you tuned in to like 60 minutes or something like that. There was an actual investigative report or just news was consolidated into what was, um, you know, focus toward your locality, your community back in the day. And now it's like, I mean, you just like when you go to the grocery store and see a million products, you have all these fucking streaming services. It's super overwhelming. Everyone is now tasked with like watching a million things, reading a million articles, figuring out what the hell to focus on. It's, it's a really incredible state when you consider how everything's been consolidated and monopolized to just a few corporations that are dictating all of this. Yeah, there's no question. Um, I know Nolan's going to jump in and have some things to say about this. After all, he is the author of The Anatomy of Fake News, <laughs> with, which, which goes down a whole history of how we've been here before. But, you know, 100 years ago, Mark Twain quipped, you know, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. <laughs> um, so now the, the newspaper has just bled into whatever people think news is or whatever they want to say that it is. And, you know, journalism is still a thing, right, as evidenced by programs like yours. Um, but most of what people consume that they believe is journalism 
is public relations. It's a, me- it's a scripted message from one industry to an audience or from, from one uh, sales, you know, one entity selling some ideology or some product to some other audience, right? Or in the case of social media, it's literally just hoovering up, literally, you know, to, to, to use the Hoover vacuum and as well as J. Edgar Hoover, FBI, um, just collecting massive amounts of data. You know, I remember when I first learned about Cambridge Analytica and they boasted 5,000 data points on each American voter. And I remember just sitting back and thinking to myself, just like, I'm me and I can't think of 5,000 data points on me. You know, I'm like, what kind of like granular atomic level of this like mining for people's psychology are we going after here? I mean, this is incredibly insidious. Um, But you're right. You know, these digital platforms, have, they're, they're seamless. And we go from the phone to the screen. You know, one of the funny, funny memes on the screen about memes on the screen to get meta meta, you know, it's like I had to take a break from my laptop to go. And so I picked up my phone so I could read a little bit of something. And then I had to take a break from the phone. So I went and watched Netflix. We're back to where we started with you and how much time where this thing keeps track, right? The tethering device keeps track. But what it doesn't keep track of is how little journalism we encounter in, the, in our time on these screens and how much propaganda we encounter instead, right? There is real investigative journalism that goes on, but you've got to find it. It doesn't just show up for you, right? And this is why critical media literacy is so important, is, and this is why we write about this in these books, is there's, there are hallmarks of what a news broadcast looks like. There are elements of a journalistic news story. There are things called sources. There, right? I mean, you know, as back to Mark Twain, you know, get your facts first, then you can distort them as much as you please. But we don't even we can't even be bothered with facts anymore because if because of our implicit biases and because of our confirmation biases, if it sounds right to me and I know what I'm talking about. Uh, then whatever you're saying is just a foreign language to me. Like if it doesn't agree with what I already know, I can't do anything with you. So you can be easily compartmentalized as the other, right? And I think that that's what's sorely lacking in journalism today is we're lacking a model for intellectual discourse, curious inquiry, agreement about what facts and opinions are, right? Meaning just what are they? Not like the different ones, but just real basic here. What is a fact? What is an opinion? Um, and I, I'm not joking. You know, I mean, we, we, we teach co- college classes. We see people coming through critical thinking classes. People don't know what a corporate news source is. People don't know what an opinion is. So they'll say like, well, I got this news article. And I'm like, well, is that a news article or is that an opinion piece? And so we're, we're really failing the next generation of people that are allegedly digital natives, but that doesn't mean that they're thinking critically about how they're interfacing or how they're being used by this digital technology. And that's really important. Yeah, that's why I would, um, and I would add, Abby, you brought up that old adage about, um, you know, don't talk uh, politics or religion at the table. I would add the word just in there, like, don't just talk, like, also listen. I think too much when we think about that, what we end up with is, um, you know, the crotchety grandpa comes to the table and, uh, spits out Fox News talking points to the idiot youth, right? Um, and that, that, that's often what I think people mean when they say don't talk about religion politics. There's, there is clearly, a, a, obviously, a reason to, um, 
talk about these issues, listen to these issues. And one of the things we, we point out in the book, and I think it um, bears repeating here, is we, we need to use the word democracy more often. Um, we, we often think of democracy as like an afterthought. Um, democracy is, is a 24-hour day job. It necessitates us constantly engaging in dialogue, constantly locating and thinking about legitimate journalism. Um, and if we don't have those things, we don't have a democracy. So it's not that we just talk and listen just for the sake of understanding, or it's not just that we have a robust journalism because we have a First Amendment and we show a press. We, we literally need those things. They're, they're vital to a democracy. Yeah, I mean, the insidiousness of the digital mining of our data, I think, is a really crucial aspect to, to discuss when we talk about how we're manipulated and led astray today away from the core topics that you guys explore in this book, which, by the way, I recommend everyone to get the book because just reading through it, I was like, man, this will help me just with my family and like my my partner, like communicating. It's just like one oh one. Like, how do you communicate? How do you like like become a better person in terms of like listening and actually understanding where other people are coming from. Like, it's actually a really great basic book that I recommend everyone to get. Um, even if you are like a media critic and uh, as a professional, but I think that this is a really important aspect is, is the data mining and the fact that we are the products, right? I mean, that's the fact that all, all of these platforms are free because we buy into them and then we are, are the products for them to exploit in a way, I feel like it's it's become, it's basically manipulated us to, to feel like we, like entertainment, like presenting news as this infotainment style is like the only way that that holds our interest almost because, you know, we're, we're firing on all cylinders. We have all this shit coming at us at, at every second. And so it's like our attention spans have been eroded so much that it's, I feel like even if we were to, finally present a model that we can all build upon, it would be like too boring <laughs> for people. You know what I mean? It's like, how do we, like, how do we navigate that? And also how do you explain actually how this functions, you guys? Because even me, it, it is still difficult to actually wrap my mind around the fact that tens of thousands of journalists can be working across these fields and all tell the same lies about Venezuela. You know what I mean? Like all of them have the passive voice about Palestine. It's like, like it still is really hard to wrap my mind around, especially when I'm trying to, to like explain to someone, like, why is it that all of these media outlets can lie, especially when it comes to like U.S. adversaries and foreign policy? Well, I think, um, you know, I think uh, to, I'll answer the latter part of your question first before thinking about big tech, but to, to the latter part of your question, um, it's, it's, journalism has become a profession of elites um, for the most part in the United States, just like anything else. And uh, elites have to believe that elite institutions are fair and legitimate. They have to believe in the meritocracy, right? That's why they can never entertain the idea that their institution is defined by racism or sexism or anything like that. Because if it is, that means that they don't have legitimacy to their position, that they're, they didn't earn their credential. They somehow were, were privileged and used that privilege to, to, to get it. Um, and so I think when you come from that that class and that line of thinking, your your sources for reporting are experts. And so who are the experts when it comes to Venezuela? They're they're foreign policy experts from the U.S. government, um, who are happy to spit talking points at supposed journalists who um, repeat those uh, stories. Now having 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 that um, how that connects to Silicon Valley. 
Silicon Valley is full of a bunch of credentialed elites as well. And they are now in the position where they're trying to, um, quote unquote, moderate content and determine what is true and what is false. And again, they make the same uh, fallacious error. They think, OK, if they're a credentialed elite expert in an elite institution or an elite aspect of government, they must be true. Uh, these ragtag podcasters and activist book writers, these people, you know, they, they don't really know what they're talking about. They haven't gone to the right elite schools. They don't have the right paperwork. So we should really do the, the user a service and marginalize those folks, get them off the newsfeed. So that's how you end up with such a, a homogenized um, view of the world. And I think what also contributes to this is Silicon Valley is really well branded. Um, so I was I was born in 1983 in the Bay Area. Uh, well, I moved out to the Bay Area, but uh, 1983, I was in, in the Bay Area growing up and I got to see sort of Silicon Valley wait, emerge. Wait, wait, wait. We're almost the same age. Holy shit. For some reason, like you're I'm like, I'm I'm the old person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm 1970. I'm, you're the, you're the fucking hippie. You're the yeah. dirty hippie. Well, Noli's the Noli's yeah. the I, I don't up. think the hippies will have me. I'm, I'm a little too aggro, but nevertheless. OK, OK, carry on. <laughs> So, so growing up in this shadow of Silicon Valley in, in the Bay Area, you got to see it kind of um, be constructed. And so, I don't know, for, for me, it was, I'm not as enamored with it, I think, as people who come from outside of the Bay Area. I, I saw that it's just a very slick sales pitch of kind of business jerks. Um, but I think it's important to demystify it for um you know, students as well, like we talk about algorithms, like there's something handed down from God. And if the algorithm says, you know, Abby Martin's a liar, she must be a liar. Um, actually, the algorithm is constructed by humans. An algorithm is basically just an equation. It does whatever its human designers tell it to do. That's why algorithms perpetuate racism and sexism, because they're created by racists and sexists in Silicon Valley. Um, Silicon Valley also pretends it's this big like innovation, right? It innovates everything. The major aspects of Silicon Valley, GPS, touchscreen, internet, all these things came from the surveillance state. They just basically put it in a, in a slick case. Um, and then they make, you know, big, broad promises like we're going to deliver democracy to the world, according to Facebook, or we're going to put a bio, uh, biology lab in a box, according to Elizabeth Holmes. And they fail, uh, dramatically fail uh, on a horrible front. And even their, their exploitative models are stolen from the gambling industry. And I know we use the word free, but it's it's really incorrect. We pay with our data for everything we do online. And the idea that you extract labor from people for free is not a new idea. We've seen this emerge in things like slavery or other forms of labor exploitation. So to, to me, I'm not enamored with um, Silicon Valley at, at any level. I, I think uh, where, you, where your question was getting at and where I think the question we should ask is if we are going to have a social media, what would we want that social media to look like? What function would we want it to serve? Um, so how do we kind of think about that moving forward? What should Silicon Valley be versus trying to keep ourselves enamored or, or regulating the, the Silicon Valley that currently exists? And the only part of Silicon Valley that I like is the fact that um, acid, like the LSD injection from like MK Ultra programs really fucking blasted off a lot of this innovation. But yeah, you're right. I mean, let's get, let's, let's look through the smoke screen and see, see it for what it really is and how insidious uh, and manipulative it can be, especially in regards to our data. Mickey, before we get into, you know, of course, solutions and what we would like to see as a media model, comment on just what I said before about just like the homogenous nature and the lockstep nature of all these people, because it's like, it, I, I totally get couching, you know, you, you may be 
not well informed about Venezuela. And then you couch your opinion by citing these think tank experts from Atlantic Council or whatever, and not really citing the fact that maybe they have ties to weapon contractors or whatever, whatever. And it goes down the line. But what about like well-intentioned young journalists who are really passionate about journalism? And then they too fall prey to this kind of media implicit bias where, you know, covering things like Shireen's murder in Israel-Palestine, especially on the heels of Sky News and BBC publishing things like, here's how to make a Molotov cocktail and throw it at a Russian soldier to kill him. It's like, how do we yeah. even fucking like, like hold these two thoughts in our mind at the same time? <laughs> yeah, it's really remarkable. The cognitive dissonance is skull exploding level, to be honest. Um, you know, conventional wisdom is the common currency that these elites peddle. It's the unspoken truths. It's the American exceptionalist mythology writ large. Um, you know, we, we've even seen people at CNN and other places just saying out loud what we've long accused them of. And they've said, no, we're not like that. But we've even seen people saying, but the Ukrainians are white. They look like we do. They have blue eyes and blonde hair. I mean, the thing, the, the eugenic drivel that's just like spewing from these people's mouths is it's pretty amazing that they then just try to play it off. You know, meanwhile, you've got bombs dropping in Syria, Libya, Ethiopia, Yemen, Palestine. I mean, I'm sure I'm leaving off too many countries, but there's no, there's no virtue signaling. No one's changing their, their Facebook picture to the Palestinian flag. Um, why is that? Well, again, it's this unspoken common currency of conventional wisdom. Don't you know that NATO are the good guys, dumb, dumb? Um, don't you remember that Russia's bad? Um, and, and we, we, get, we get spoken to by elite political figures and the news media alike as if we're just dumb kids following along and we want to please our teachers, right? We want to please them. Um, so we, we have to go along. Um, I have to have an anti-racist badge at the end of my email at work or someone might think I'm a racist. Um, you know, nobody in their right mind is going to think I'm a racist if they've been listening to what I've been saying for the last 20 years. But we've distilled down in our idiocracy, like the soundbite is now so sacred that nobody has time for nuance. Nobody has time for details. Nobody has time to fact check. So we have to have somebody else do it for us. This is all a recipe for a disaster. It's all a total recipe for disaster. And it's predicated on this idea that somebody somewhere hopes that somebody's paying enough attention that will catch it, right? And, but those people, those canaries in the coal mine, Though that's us and we're on the margins, right? We're not on CNN. We're not on Fox. We're not in the New York Times. We're not at the Washington Post. Um, we're the ones that talking about critical media literacy. We're the ones pointing to all of these things that are happening. And we're saying, how, how have we collectively lost our minds to this degree that like you said, you can have the BBC talking about how to make a Molotov cocktail and then acting like, like it's not promoting violence and warfare. YouTube even changed their community standards to allow some promotion of violence as long as it's against Russian people in Ukraine. I mean, once you get to that level, anything's possible. And you got to go. And again, all of these people are playing right out of the playbook of Edward Bernays. If you go back and look at Edward Bernays book in 1928 called Propaganda, he literally talks about how a small group of elite people control the intellectual sort of currency and conventional wisdom of the society 
They replicate it through public relations and the news media. And that is what is the that's the reality based community. Now I'm riffing on Karl Rove and the infamous quote from Ron Suskind about how the Bush administration be after 9-11 became history's actors. The neocons that your brother has written and talked so much about, Abby, the Kagans and others, and you too have done a ton of research and unmasking of this group of people. They've taken it right out of Bernays. They know how to control the message. And Rove even said, we are history's actors. You journalists are merely stenographers for us. Study what we do. It's such an incredible quote, isn't it? It is. It's right out of Bernays. This is exactly the society that we live in. Abby, can I, I, I want to just add one, one thing yeah, that I yeah, think yeah, it's really important because Mickey, Mickey cited there the work you're doing. And um, it's not just because I'm on, on your show. I say, this <laughs> at all, I say this at all my public talks. Um, some of the most exciting stuff that's going on, to get back to your original question and, and use you as an example here, some of the most exciting stuff that's going on is in this new media space of podcasting and video streams and things like that. I'm very excited for what's being done um, there. And I, and the reason why I know you folks are making a difference um, is because uh, the way the vitriolic reaction you're receiving from the establishment, I know that that probably uh, doesn't uh, warm you too much at night thinking about that, but the fact that they're so outraged that you folks go out, you find truth, draw in massive audiences, and and you do it the exact opposite way of them, the, the way that they told you was impossible, right? It's not like these podcasters don't have like, huge broadcasting budgets. It's not perfect audio. They're not talking in three minute segments to sixth graders. They're talking three hour segments at an intellectual level. They're not a homogenized worldview. There's a diversity of disagreement and it's respectful and it's intellectual. So for for all those reasons, I'm really excited about that space. But having, having said that, the way the establishment is working with big tech to go after this space, I, I highly encourage those in the podcasting community to, to continue to um, organize together. We see a lot of this. Anytime someone gets demonetized or kicked off, a lot of other podcasters will have them on and try and draw attention to it. I think keeping that community is going to be crucial to keeping the space alive for those future journalists you were asking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're doing that now, right? I mean, RT went down. Chris Hedges went to Real News Network. For, for the his book interview show, Ram, how radical is that? Uh, you know, I mean, it was he even joked that it was probably too boring for PBS 20 years ago. Um, it would be on at one in the morning, you know, something like that. But I mean, even that's too radical for Americans, right? We can't even hear ideas like this. So we're trying to get Lee Camp back up and running with Behind the Headlines. And I know Menar um, Adley at Mint Press, you know, trying to raise money to do that. But but Nolan's right. The reason that the establishment and legacy press is going after people like Joe Rogan, it, it's not about Joe Rogan. They're pissed off because someone's stealing their audience because they have become so accustomed to thinking they own us, right? That's what they think of us. That's what these companies, how they view us, right? That they get incensed that 11 million people think he's more interesting. And again, Nolan's pointed this out again and again in different op-eds and other places. He's like, it's not the medium, it's the message. We don't need 12 different kinds of CNN. We need something else that isn't CNN. We need something that isn't Tucker Carlson over at Fox. T- Tucker has his niche of 3 million people, right? And, it's, it's, and I know people are like, we got to get rid of Tucker. We got to turn Tucker off. I'd rather know what Tucker's saying and these people following him. I want to know where they are. I want to know what these people claim to be thinking. And I'd love an opportunity 
to disagree with them by talking to them about their worldview, by engaging them in their worldview. And ironically, Tucker Carlson invites people on his show that he disagrees with. I mean, I'm not support. I'm not saying I agree with Tucker Carlson. What I'm saying is, is that that's what these people in these spaces are doing that Nolan's talking about. You're having conversations with people about things that the corporate media don't talk about or they're afraid to talk about, or they don't even know that they're there to be talked about in the first place, because that's how just totally disconnected they are from reality. And we need to remember that we need to broaden all this, right? When you were starting your question, I couldn't help but think about how Project Censored has been covering junk food news since the 80s. Carl Jensen came up with an alternative list. He had the top censored stories. And then he was like, well, we know what you're not covering. (laughs) What the hell are you doing? And it was basically, you know, it's today's equivalent of the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial or the Kardashians or O.J. Simpson. And if that's not bad enough, if it wasn't just straight up junk peddling, it was news abuse that Peter Phillips talked about, about just relentless propaganda. Like there's tons of information about Ukraine, but it's mostly propaganda. There's a bunch of half contextual information about Ukraine But then there's no history of the 30 years of NATO. There's no history of the Clintons meddling with Yeltsin. There's no there's no history of pushing past the red line. That's just all memory hold. Right. And so between the junk food news and infotainment culture and news abuse propaganda that Project Censored has been talking about for over 40 years, this is what our establishment legacy media. That's what it is. It's comprised mostly at best of half-truths or partial truths, with a mixture of extraordinary distractions, mis- and disinformation, titillating emotional sensationalist hyperpartisan material, and then one or two messages of the day to just repeat over and over and over again. You will be on Team Pfizer. You will be on Team Blue and Gold. You rinse, recycle, repeat, right? And people need to disengage from that, and they need to go find these other alternative spaces they need, there are, and that's why we are writing these books. That's why we do these shows. That's why we all do these things is we all reference what each other are doing as a network, as a community, an alternative, independent, non-corporate, anti-war, anti-imperialist, anti-commercial community, right? And it is there. And we just have to encourage people that that is a, a, that is a world worth experiencing. It is a world worth replicating. It is a world worth exploring. And we are in charge of it, right? This is why we need to stand up against big tech, against any kind of big tech controls, big tech censorship. An injury to one is an injury to all. We need to really go back to basic grassroots solidarity politics here. We, if we live in a, quote, consumer culture, we have the ultimate vote as consumers where we put our eyeballs, where we put our attention, where we put money, and we really need to harness that kind of power. And we need to hit the off button on corporate media and on these platforms that promote censorship. And we need to insist on it. 
I totally agree with you. Um, there's a lot to be said, but I, I have to get this out of the way because you mentioned the 9-11 era. And I think that this is just a really fascinating example of how media evolved to the point where now the notion of corporate media distrust has somehow been funneled into a partisan lens through Trump. You know, we talked about it in our documentary that we did together, Fake News, about Trump exploiting this term. The term makes sense. I mean, it's based on the fact that the U.S. government primarily and its proxies have been peddling fake news, right, about war, about the machinery and machinations of the U.S. empire for decades. So the fact that he was tapping into something very real and then somehow made it partisan, just like a lot of things that he did, right? Anti-establishmentism. The fact that now all of this has bled into the notion being critical of the U.S. government is somehow folded into now being a Republican. You know, you just saw Elon Musk post today like, oh, he used to be a Democrat. Now he's a proud Republican. Well, another another news, water is wet, right? A billionaire's Republican, water's fucking wet. But like, it's just so crazy to me that, you know, QAnon, all of these things, relegating QAnon followers to a third lane of the of of the Internet, you know, pushing them out of our purview, sanitizing our viewpoints. I mean, all of these things actually castigates these people and reinforces the notion that they're on to something. Right. The 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 what is it called? The Kruger or the Streisand effect. Yeah. And it, it is very problematic today because now you have this kind of reflexive contrarianism of anti-liberal ism. Which is like, I get the core belief that, you know, neoliberalism is obviously a lot of, of the structure that we're trying to oppose here. But you have this association with how liberals are bad. It's somehow making it where anti-establishmentism folds people into now supporting Republicans. And, and this notion that li the liberal media, right, the same thing that was peddled by Rush Limbaugh decades ago has now stuck again. It's repopularized for a lot of people in younger generations that think that liberals control the messaging and it's kind of erasing the space of right-wing media ecosphere, how powerful Fox news is, how powerful AM talk radio is, and also kind of erases what the true nature of the political, political economy of the mass media really is. Yeah. Um, you know, it's well, it's well said. Uh, the, the dominant the dominance of um neoliberalism has, has come at the expense of of the left obviously like um leftist america spent too many years um trying to find a way if we just tweak neoliberals the right way maybe we can get back our our progressive politics um but but conservatives have always come from a viewpoint that they're anti-institutional liberals have always come from the perspective they believe institutions work well 30 or 40 years of institutions completely failing uh, is a really easy way for conservatives to make the case that liberals are failing them. Um, so on the one hand, I, I, I find it very easy to undermine some of the conservative arguments about the system, right? About the problems in the system and who's at fault. And like, you know, we, we don't need to build a wall that's not going to solve our problems. But, uh, but on the other hand, I, I don't really blame them. I blame um, those of us on the, on the left and, and those in the center for giving them so much red meat, um, you know, like, why is it that people don't trust the, the news media in this country? Well, news media has failed them. Why is it they don't uh, trust the economic system or economic institutions? Well, they failed and exploited them. Why is it they don't trust elected officials? Because they've made big, big promises and done the opposite and exploited them. Um, you do that for, for 30 or 40 years, you're basically pushing people into the arms of a demagogue like Trump. Um, so I'm not 
shock someone like Trump would, would um, exploit that opportunity. Uh, you know, I find it disgusting and I oppose it. But I'm more concerned with why uh, neoliberal centrists and leftists keep letting this this occur um, to the point that they're even like, you know, defending institutions like the CIA and NSA, uh, you know, throughout the Trump years. I never thought like people who claim to be leftists would be aligned with like the intelligence community. And I think that's that's to me, that's really where the war needs to be fought. Progressives need to pull that neoliberal center left. It's it's more the fight is there and less about what's going on in the conservative circle. This was cemented into the political consciousness of the U.S. into the establishment with the rise of the Clintons. This is what we were talking about coming out of the 50s. This is what was coming out. People like James Buchanan, uh, later uh, in the Lewis Powell memo in the Nixon years, later went on to the Supreme Court. This is exactly what these, these people knew what they were doing. And Clinton went along with it to, to secure this center-right sort of power, if you will, with everything else on the right, and they would divide up America. So, you know, when you take a look, and I know Chris Hedges rails against the liberal class and the professional managerial class and what that's turned into. But for a lot of us, that's really neoliberalism. That's corporate centrism. That's this is, again, how much we've lost this history is that we don't even have the same definitions. You know, if you teleported back to the 30s and you started bad mouthing liberalism, people would be like, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, You know, if you would go back to 1940 and you look at Franklin Roosevelt's four freedoms, right, the freedom of speech, the freedom to worship, the freedom from want and the freedom from fear. Those are the cornerstones of liberal democracy. I mean, so it's ironic, you know, when I eschew the term liberal because of what it connotes now, right? Now, I mean, even in the 60s, love me, I'm a liberal, right? It even had tarnished, you know, established, co-opted meaning then, right? Um, but notice in the process what's what we're losing. We're losing the ability to even, t- now we're back to religion and politics at the table, We're losing our ability to talk about the core values of our society. What what is freedom of speech? What does it actually mean? What is my freedom to believe something and yours to not believe it? What does it mean? How do we understand how to disagree about those things that this book is about? How about this? What about freedom from want and freedom from fear? You would have no such thing as QAnon. You would have no such thing of replacement theory. You would have no such thing if people's basic needs were met in this society. It is by design we're divided. It is by design that we are kept at each other's throats and media keeps doing it because it makes billions of dollars and keeps all the wars going and all the money flowing as the blood seeps into the mud, as Bob Dylan would sing in Masters of War, right? And we keep somnambulously toiling away as social justice keyboard warriors on our digital plantations, right? Thinking all the while, if we get just enough likes, we'll somehow make the world a better place. It's not going to happen. That's not how we make the world a better place. We make the world a better place by practicing what we teach. We make the world a better place by talking and listening to each other. And we make the world a better place by helping people that don't have those basic needs met, right? And all of that gets lost in the din of our sensationalist, completely um, jingoistic, crazed culture. You know, Mickey, what is the ideal? What it like? Describe if you were to describe the economy of mass media in terms of ideological and political. What would you say? 
it's a mass distraction machine. It's a self-referential, uh, you know, uh, it's a self-referential platform that provides the illusion of things like technological progress and uh, it, it maintains the illusion of exceptionalism and other important mythologies and belief systems. In many cases, mass media literally is our religious delivery system, right? It is a secular belief system, if you will, um, that we all buy into. It's a consumer capitalism, right? That's really what this is. And then anything else that gets adjuncted onto the platform serves those primary agendas, and I can tell you what's not on the agenda. Freedom of speech is not on the agenda. Uh, freedom to have your connection with the world and your connection to being a living thing in the world, that's out the window because we've created the climate crisis. And we're not even allowed to talk about fixing our own planet where we live because the corporate media don't want to admit it. And as you well know, the, the military is the largest polluter on the entire planet. We're literally killing ourselves as we kill each other. That was and my media uh, is the major platform for it. I was just going to say that was that was my favorite moment. Like elites have enjoyed like thirty or forty years of being insulated <laughs> in media. And when you asked Abby, when you asked Nancy Pelosi <laughs> that question, it, it wasn't even like she was mad. She was just like shocked, like oh. a real question. Like, what, who are you? What, what are you doing here? <laughs> I want a woman. I want a woman. Oh, not that. Maybe I don't. That's what not she that said when woman. she saw me. Not that was bizarre. Woman. You got to come that. with a disclaimer. Not that woman. <laughs> <laughs> to get that shirt made dude and mike uh, mike needs the shirt too for not that veteran <laughs> <laughs> oh did you, hear, but, did you hear bush's he can gas? finance the independent media yes. empire through these t-shirt sales i'm convinced <laughs> of it Capitalist in me somewhere. i love it well nolan i want to i want to throw this to you because you had some really excellent commentary in the wake of Elon Musk announcing that he was going to buy Twitter. Um, and, you know, talk about hopium. You know, I think a lot of people are aware of this problem, as you guys clearly outlined. A lot of people are very, uh, very awake to the fact that they're being lied to institutionally in mass. Um, and, and naturally, of course, you want to believe in something, right? You, you want to believe like Ralph Nader articulated in that book, like the billionaires can save us from the problems that they exemplify, right? Every, all the problems of our society are exemplified by the very fact that there are billionaires, but it, it, it really is problematic um, because as you mentioned, I mean, Elon Musk is not really who we think he is. And when someone just has an ad campaign or potentially a publicity stunt, and they paint themselves as this free speech warrior who's going to step in and save the day. It's not really as simple as that. Yeah. I, um, you know, one of the things I sort of pointed out in, in that piece is that we already have kind of a, a narrow um, and misguided sense of what free speech in the digital realm looks like. Uh, the platform dictates what's possible in terms of what you can communicate. And it also dictates who sees it and who doesn't see it. So already we have limits, right? Um, these, these, their algorithms choose some content is more engaging versus others. Um, that can be made along ideological lines. It can be made among other lines, regardless. Um, this idea that we have free speech online as we think of it in the traditional public square is already false, no matter what platform you're, you're talking about. Um, but, but, even then, um, if you thought the changes that Twitter and other companies have made in the last five or six years were, were bad or wrong or however you define it, 
The idea that the way we're going to solve free speech issues is by having just the right billionaire get into power is illustrative of a country that has lost a sense of democracy. Um, the very fact that we were debating publicly about which oligarch should control the de facto public square so we can have freedom of speech, that already is a bad, bad sign for democracy. And I was just sort of um, trying to trying to sound the alarm here that, that like this isn't about Elon. The, the very fact that we're arguing or debating which oligarch um, shows a much larger systemic problem that we need to address. Couldn't agree more. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of the solution here. Um, you know, because that's obviously the, the whole premise of your book. And here I am just talking about the problem the whole time, but it's so fun <laughs> to dissect. But, but let's well talk about the solution. <laughs> exactly. This is this is a really interesting aspect of the book, Mickey, um, how our understanding of conflict and communication is also shrouded in myth. Yeah, it's you know, like I said, we don't have good models, right, as a society in general. Our political class is, is a chair throwing, punch throwing class, insult hurling class. The news media, I mean, you know, years ago, Jon Stewart joked about crossfire Right. When he was talking to Tucker then and he was saying, like, you know, you guys are dicks, you're ruining the country. I mean, and the thing that wasn't funny about it is that it was true. Right. It's just sort of like you have this platform, you have this privilege to conduct intelligent discourse, dialogue to really maybe make a difference. Because as Carl Jensen at Project Censored said, the media can make a huge difference. If the media wants to focus on an issue and show what's happening and we need to help rally around X, we, we can do that. We, we can do that as people and our institutions can be responsive to those things. But when they go to the base elements and when they are only used for crass consumer purpose, purchase purposes to sell and peddle ideas or products or dumb things, you know, again, we, we bring the whole thing down with the least the lowest common denominator you know, is, isn't necessarily our best look. Um, but there are many people that have taught us why communication matters, how building logical arguments is important. And it's not even that hard to do if you want to do it, right? So we do live in a culture that mythologically thinks that, well, we've heard from both sides, but that's the binary, right? That's the binary mythology. There's always more than two sides, right? Or more, usually always more, right? So, but we never hear about them. And we don't, Nolan mentioned this earlier, but we don't talk about listening either. And I know there's some irony there, but we do have to deliberately talk about what does it mean to be an active critical listener? And we talk about that in the book. People like Daniel Dennett have written whole books of philosophy about what, is, what does it mean to be a, a competent communicator and a democratic communicator? What does it mean to be an active listener? And how do I critically listen? Why do I need empathy in order to, to not only understand others, but even to better understand myself? Cultural competency. Why do I need to learn about other people's cultures? How does that, um, how does that affect the way I interact with them or what I think of them or, or what I think of myself or whatever groups I identify with? Nolan and I spent a lot of time in this book talking about, in fact, we started the book. We, we thought we were going to start with critical thinking, right? Because we were like, we're going to teach critical thinking. We're going to teach these people how to think, not what to think. Um, but then we stopped and we said, all right, wait a minute. You know, it's hard to talk critical thinking to people because we don't know how to talk to each other. Uh, so until you really address how you talk to that person at the table, right, who's telling you that you're not allowed to talk about religion and politics, 
until you come up with a, a, a game plan for how does this happen? How do we do this? How do we dance? Right. Not every dance is a slam dance. Right. I mean, yeah, I play speed metal and I know mosh pits, but you know, the whole idea of that was getting in the circle and going around. It's not to knock people down when they get knocked down, you pick them up. Right. I mean, that's part of like metal and punk culture. That is a lesson that we really should learn in our political discourse. It's not about the last one left standing. It's about how are we experiencing this together and how do we elevate the experiences for each other and how do we play off of each other, not against each other, right? How do we build better things together? How do we build wall? How do we build bridges, not walls, right? We talked about walls before, but communication is that bridge. And unless we spend time understanding communication and then understanding cognitive biases and critical thinking, we could, we could be the smartest people going and it doesn't make any bit of difference because nobody's going to hear us. Nobody's going to listen. And that noise is going to continue until somebody comes along and conducts it in a way that it is less cacophonious and that it is more harmonious based on what our values are. Right. And when we really start to talk about human values, suddenly that person over there with the QAnon Fred Flintstone Poobah Lodge hat on, you know, suddenly they care about something that I also care about. And then we strip down whatever the, the cultural machinations that attach to it are. And we get down to the fact you're worried about pedophilia. You're worried about child abuse. You're worried about, so I'm worried about those things too, maybe less so. And I'm worried about them for real, not just in an imaginary way. Like, but how do we talk to people about that? You're right. There's a shared value system that we can expand upon if we can relate to each other on a basic level. Here's, yeah. a, here's an interesting fact that I think needs to be differentiated between what you guys are talking about in the book, which is agreeing to disagree, meeting people where they're at, trying to understand each other. And then there's the notion of debating. And for me, I'm a horrible debater, right? And and I think that it's a talent. It's an acquired and learned talent to be able to debate someone about a particular issue. And I think that, that that's also kind of problematic when this is being urged as like the solution. Like you debate him, whoever's left standing, like their ideas are victorious. Like you debate Ben Shapiro and whoever can fucking talk faster. You know what I mean? It's like that that's not actually that doesn't really mean that this is more valid than that. It, it could mean someone's more talented at debating than the other person. And so I think this notion of like, again, like the wrestling match, like whose intellect is superior and that idea has more merit is also problematic. Yeah, I would agree. I, I um, you know, we, um, we recognize that let's agree to disagree <clears throat> can mean a lot of different things. And, you know, we did, we did not mean it in the sense of like, you know, if you just just dis just tell a white supremacist we just disagree and walk the other direction. <laughs> um, that's not how we meant it. No. Uh, no, we meant is that we need to get in in comfortable spaces where we're willing to confront the fact that we do disagree and work through those disagreements. And um, thinking about about myths, like one of the myths that Americans have about conflict is they think that harmony is normal and conflict is abnormal. Uh, when in reality, the opposite is true. We're in conflict constantly at every aspect of our lives over very important things to, to very stupid things, right? Everyone always gets the Thanksgiving example of politics, but people are also in conflict at Thanksgiving or whether or not they show up turkey or whatever, right? There's some conflict there. Um, vegetarian, don't eat turkey. Okay. Yes. Hashtag get rid of meat. Um, so the, uh, but 
the the conflict always always exists. And so one of the things about using the debate analogy, why I think it's not helpful, is when we debate, we're usually trying to win or change the other person's mind. Our text kind of takes a slightly different approach. We, we think it's very important to engage in dialogue for the purpose of understanding each other. And in the process, we, we know we're, we're always, we're all students and teachers. So we need to open ourselves up to the fact we are going to learn, but we're also going to teach. If you try to engage someone who has a viewpoint that you just find abhorrent, um, you know, somebody who, who bleeds patriarchy and you think in a 10 minute conversation, you're gonna disentangle this person from patriarchy. I hate to tell you, you're probably gonna fail. Um, but you can make some critical steps in getting there. You can listen to this person, perhaps find out where this came from in their life, why they think this, ask questions to get them to interrogate the evidence behind it. Um, when someone says something that I disagree with or, or tells a story that I believe is false, I don't try and say like fake news and shout at them. I try and say like, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. What evidence do you have for that? That's not going to change their mind on the spot, but it's going to plant a seed of like, hey, if you're going to make these claims, I want to know what evidence you have for them. And if you don't have evidence, perhaps you shouldn't make that claim. Um, and, I, and I think just sort of engaging people on that human level is, is really powerful. Um, also training ourselves to remember that we have a curse of knowledge bias. Everyone doesn't know everything that I know. And if I project on them that they should, that is really unfair and unproductive. Um, people have a different set of um, lived experiences. They've come across different content. They're in a different place than me. And if I really care, again, if the goal is to engage these folks, I need to meet them where they're at, not where I wish they were. And, you know, I want to real quick play with the seed metaphor because when we're talking to someone, we, we, we have to think of it less as a sporting match or less as a competition and more of, a, of an organic process of growing something with someone. So if you're planting that seed, if the first seed you plant is a seed of anger or is a seed of resentment or a seed of I'm right, you're wrong no matter what, you're going to grow a disastrous offspring, right? You're not going to grow something that's healthy. You know, you know, water. I always remember Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, my dad introduced me to Thich Nhat Hanh when I was younger. The now late great Thich Nhat Hanh just died early this year at ninety-five. The Buddhist monk. My dad always talked about watering the positive seeds. You know, and when I was younger, you know, I was a smartass. I was just like, well, you know, the negative seeds are fun to water too, or whatever. You know, what I mean, wait. You when know, you were younger, you were a smartass. Come on, now. Oh yeah, I was. Yeah, well, yeah, I was. I know, hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, breaking news. Breaking news. Yeah. I, sarcasm was a second language for me. Um, but uh, but, you know, I've since grown up a little bit in 50 years. Um, and so the watering the positive seed thing, you know, to me, there was a book called The Art of Communicating. And we quoted Thich Nhat Hanh in it. And I, I thought it was really important. And, and it's not because this has to be a religious statement. Right. And this doesn't have to be, um, you know, it's we're in Northern California. So it doesn't have to be some kind of new age thing or whatever. How are people like to label things so they can ignore the good parts of it, right? Um, when we say something that nourishes us and up uplifts the people around us, we are feeding love and compassion. When we speak and act in a way that causes tension and anger, we are nourishing violence and suffering. So we use the example of Daryl Davis in the book, the African-American activist and musician. Interesting, I think, that he's a musician, because I'm also a musician and improvisationist, and the language of music and sound translates to communicating or speaking or writing in other ways, at least in my mind. 
And so how we talk and how we communicate and the words we choose and the context we are operating in, that's all about how we're taking care of the seed. That's how are we going to, how are we going to grow that seed between the two of us or the groups of us? And I'm at least partially responsible for what happens to that. Not entirely, but if I want, if Daryl Davis didn't collect 200 robes from Ku Klux Klansmen, he wouldn't have changed 200 white supremacist minds about why it's a problem to be a racist. And he did it. He didn't have to. He could have went and played music and hung out and done his thing. But see, we, we, we have to realize that, again, it's not, it's not like I get it. If I recycle my cup, I'll save the world. No, I get it. We won't. And no, Daryl Davis didn't single-handedly dismantle white supremacy. But you know what he did do? He provided a profound model for how to plant seeds, how to, how to water the positive seed, and how that you're not going to change somebody overnight. But if you allow your truth to come out and you listen carefully and you find common ground, you might actually bring out the better angels in people. You might, but it takes time. It takes effort. I have to want to. And you know what? If it, the last thing I want to do is sit down and talk to somebody that already told me they hated me in the first sentence. They were anti-trans, anti-gay, anti-black. So Nolan and I get this profoundly. We're two white guys. This is why we went way out of our way to find as many diverse and many different examples of other people, other scholars, people with different kinds of political identifications and so on, that all are arguing these similar things that we're saying. We're not saying, listen to us, we're the experts. We're saying, seems like there's a lot of best practices around and there's a lot of people that really care about communicating, thinking critically and making the world a better place. Where are we? And we tried to put that together in this book, if you will. We tried to put all these kind of ideas together here. We're, we're the messengers, right? But we think that this is an important message. Let's agree to disagree doesn't mean be a doormat for your racist neighbor. It means let's engage that person in a way that eventually you're not going to be my racist neighbor. And maybe that'll be because I move away. <laughs> Well, that, but, that, yeah, but, but that's not the first choice, right? <laughs> well, this is primarily why I've really severed ties with social media. And I'm just more excited about engagement face to face, because the more I actually do open doors to my neighbors and just random people in my community, the more I realize that this bridge can be walked on. I mean, it, it, you know, the divide isn't as stark as you really think. And, you know, I would, I would say that, yeah, maybe your neoliberal family members or friends can be pulled much easier to your side than your really racist, you know, guy down the street or whatever, but he's also possible to be opened up to because a lot of these beliefs are generated from fear, fear of what uncle. people say black people do, fear of what people say trans people do. I mean, it really, it, it, it sometimes right? is as simple as that. I worked on people like my dad. I worked on my uncle. I worked on people as long as they, my uncle's still here. But I know, that, I mean, my parents impacted me, but I know I changed the way my dad saw things as he got to the, the end of his life. 
I was no longer the crazy conspiracy theorist crackpot, you know, history professor's son. It was, you know, some of the things you're saying are just true. I just don't want to believe them. Right. Right. And my exceptionalist uncle and the J the door in with him was JFK. He loved JFK, but he believed in American mythology and he believed in the ideals. He couldn't give them up. He couldn't give up the red, white and blue, a proud liberal Democrat. But you know how I got him? JFK. Oliver Stone, David Talbot, Peter Dale Scott, Jefferson Morley. I I got him. You find the thing that someone really is passionate about and they really care about and you try to make it a microcosmic lesson of something, right? And you find a way in. And and you find a way that they can agree in their own minds. You know, you're right about that. I can't trust that Dulles brothers. No, you're right. He was the head of the CIA. I mean, you know, they I guess they didn't have everybody's best interest at heart. And 20 years later, the next thing you know, they're just like, my God, they killed the man. That didn't happen overnight. And I realized that that's somebody that I have a certain relationship with. So I kept that door open. But he also kept the door open. He didn't slam it in my face. And if he did, I came back and knocked on it again. And I, I would come back and that's where you can use humor and you can use sarcasm and you can use other rhetorical devices to get people to kind of calm down or to sort of see things in different ways. But you got to want to do it, you know, and that's what Nolan and I are writing about in this book is that we all know how to do this. It's just work. It's yeah, a lot, sometimes it's a lot required. <laughs> and, and to and to connect and to connect it back there uh, to what Mickey said to, to um, how Abby opened that up. Uh, one of the things we talk about in the text too is that um, social uh, social media platforms. There, there's some important work you can do on these platforms, but mostly they're not conducive to constructive dialogue. Um, and so, if there are subjects you care about, um, whatever they may be, um, you should probably give them the the arena they they deserve. And, you know, I, I want to give, you know, shout out to like Christian Fuchs and Angela Nagel. I know, I know folks hate Angela Nagel, but I love Angela Nagel's work. Pick up, kill the normies. It's awesome. Um, they did some really great stuff on um, talking about how like, look, this, this is a toxic environment. Active, the left is basically putting their activism into digital technologies. It's going to destroy the left. And here we are. And then I heard, I know, Abby, I've heard you say this in a couple of interviews, but I've heard some others start to kind of wrestle with this idea of like, um, generationally, you know, we were promised so many big things from social media. And now we're kind of looking back to like previous generation and be like, oh, that like old school organizing face to face building community. We need that much more than Twitter um, and, and to build that stability. And so that's another part of the, the text we talk about is there is a utility to media, but but know its limits that we're talking about actually building coalitions and understanding people and, and changing minds. Absolutely. And censorship is infantilizing as appealing as it may seem to, you know, uh, erase a figure like a, a revolting figure like Alex Jones. At the end of the day, it is it treats us like children and basically tells us that we are not smart enough to understand the reality that we live in today. Right. And it and it and erasing people from the face of the earth does not mean that they are gone or their beliefs are gone. They are there. They exist. And if we don't engage with them and understand them, we are going to be in for a darker future um, and, a, and a more polarized future. You guys, could we give some tools for people to leave this off about how yeah. 
we can critically assess the information that's coming at us all the time. And I know, you know, the book is an incredible informational guide that really just breaks down biases, what we can look out for. But I guess leave us with some tools that people can take away and use. Yeah, go ahead, Nolan. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we focus a lot in the book on on media. And we say media, um, you know, Mickey and I do a lot of work on news media, but we mean all media. So advertisements, films, podcasts, songs, um, all books, all this media. Um, you you want to always be asking critical questions. And I know it may sound like you can't enjoy media and ask critical questions, but but it is possible. Um, we do this all the time. Last night I was up uh, bored and I rewatched Sandlot and I was asking critical questions about it. <laughs> Um, uh, I wouldn't recommend it, but, um, the, uh, the idea, just, just asking questions, what is the message? You know, sometimes it's simplistic message of good versus evil, or, you know, the U S is exceptional. Things like that are told in, in film, love conquers all, whatever it may be. Um, but there's also deeper messages, like how are people and, and things and regions represented, um, you know, why is it that women are always in secondary roles? Why is it that people of color are, are supporting actors? Why is it that Russians always look very angry in all American films? Are all Russians mad all the time? Um, th those kinds of critical questions. And once you start to realize that there's always a message being communicated, that there's a much larger process of uh, funding and um, ide ideologues involved in the creation of messages, you can start to see how messages are being flung at you from everywhere, including, and I would argue most importantly, in news media. Um, objectivity is an aspiration for journalists and journalists should aspire to be objective, but they're never actually going to achieve it. Achieve it. They're always gonna have some bias, some spin, some frame on the story. And you will be a lot more savvy and well-positioned citizen of democracy if you can recognize what that <laughs> spin is. Absolutely. You know, we talk about in the early part of the book on conflict management. Um, Nolan, you wrote about Robert Putnam, you know, 20 years ago, wrote a book called Making Democracy Work and talks about social capital. Um, that's what we're lacking. Right. This has been it's almost as if social capital has been the, the result of a controlled demolition. We've 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 like basically destroyed it in our culture. We talked about this earlier with neoliberalism you know, coming out of the 50s and the 60s and the culture wars and how those were magnified in the 90s. Then 9-11 came down the pike and it was us, them forever. Um, we really, and then social media has just really picked up where that divisiveness and those divides have left off. And we're forgetting empathy. We're forgetting reciprocity. We're forgetting listening. We're forgetting the skill. We're forgetting what, what, what again, those sometimes are called passive skills, but they're only passive when we don't use them. <laughs> They're actually very active when you're mindful of, of what it means to be empathetic and what it means to be aware of your own biases, right? That's being an active participant. When, when Nolan talks about, you know, how, how we don't talk about democracy, we're not one, but talking about democracy as a verb is really important, right? Talking about doing it like Ralph Nader does is, is, is important, right? But when we lack the language to even discuss it and we're so busy at odds about the language, we never get to the idea. We never get to build the bridge to the value. And that's what we remind people over and over again in the book. And by the time you get to the end of the book, it's again, it's uh, the book is by Rutledge. Let's agree to disagree. A critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management and critical media literacy. It's a textbook. So, yeah, it's not the cheapest book in the world, but. If you're an educator and you want to get a copy, you can email Rutledge for a copy. Um, but we talk about getting critical and critical is a really important word 
because critical doesn't mean to be negative. It means to understand. It means to inquire. It means to be curious. And so we literally used the word critical <laughs> um, to come up with a list of things that we hope people will do in the last chapter. And it's, it's to create constructive dialogue, to reflect on communication practices, to inquire, be a critical thinker, to test theory and spot ideology, like be aware of social theories, be aware of ideologies, investigate and evaluate mass media. Can't emphasize that enough. It's our main like central nervous system of communication societally. We need to understand it and navigate it. We need to critique content and understand propaganda versus ethical journalism. We need to assess, analyze, and evaluate our digital media use and abuse, including censorship and self-censorship. And we need to lead by example. Democracy is not a spectator sport. So we actually culminate the whole book into the last chapter. And you talk about so-called toolboxes or toolkits, if you were to be cliche. Uh, we, we, we use those words in education, right? The toolbox. Um, it's there. The whole last chapter is basically walk around with this in your pocket and, and be as mindful of as much of it as possible going through your daily activities, right? That's when you get caught off guard. When you come to this class and you're on page 65 and you're looking at it, you're like, I'm very mindful of the argument on page 65. Until you go outside and somebody cuts you off in the parking lot. And then you're like, oh, da, da, da. you know, you're right back into the mouth. The reptile right? brain. Yeah, you're right back into the outrage culture, right? So we, we need to be nicer to each other and remind each other, like, what are, what are our own blind spots? Where, are, where do we go unhinged? Where are our own outrages? And, you know, we need to be gentler with each other in terms of, you know, reminding us when we kind of slip and fall. It's sort of like, hey, come on back up here a minute. Um, what happened? <laughs> yeah, we're in a society where we are truly all in this together, especially as, you know, the crises become larger and larger. And we really need to unify to, to confront those, you guys. And it is very overwhelming, I think, for the layman or the average person who has a nine to five, who is, you know, a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. And I, that's why you need to... You, like, of course, these are all extremely helpful tools and I recommend everyone get the book, but also follow journalists that you trust. Project Censored has been a crucial outlet for me ever since I became passionate about the subject, because it doesn't matter what your issue is. If you don't have people fighting for a free media and an independent media, you won't be heard. And that's why Project Censored is the best organization to support all of the journalists that work for Project Censored. Really, really crucial very underrated figures. And, you know, at a certain point, you actually, you, it's really hard to do all this yourself, right? And we're not asking you to do that. Um, and so it's about finding those people that, that have shown integrity and that have shown that they will fight for the truth, wherever those facts may lead you guys or put their biases on their sleeve. You know, someone speaking like me. I mean, I, I, I reveal where I come from and what my bias is and you can navigate around that, right? You can navigate around RT's bias, but you can't navigate around a corporate media monolith that is subsidized by 50 corporations and 500 different advertising entities and CEOs who have very specific objectives about foreign policy. It's very, very overwhelming. So you have to give yourself a break too, right? But you guys, 
absolutely incredible conversation. Is there anything you wanted to say to close us out, Nolan? No, I think that um, does it for me. I, I would just uh, quickly add that, um, you know, to echo your point, Abby, one of the things we did in the, in the text is we made a concerted effort to um, introduce controversial topics and try and show the different sides of that topic so people could see what it's actually like to understand something from um, different viewpoints. And um, one of the reasons I think we're, we're positioned to do that is because of what you said about journalists. Um, following, following journalists uh, versus outlets, I think is really important, um, especially journalists who've shown themselves to be courageous. What I mean by that is report on the thing that legacy media hates or opposes, but stand your ground, follow the evidence. And you know, five, six years later, you, those folks turn out to be right. Um, Abby is among them and, and others. Um, so following those kind of journalists is important. Um, it's a useful resource for you to understand the world and, and be better positioned in your democracy. So thank you very much, Abby, for all your work and having us on the show. We appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Nolan Higdon, Mickey Huff of Project Censored. Everyone check it out. First watch the film Fighting the Fake News Invasion. Free documentary available online. Then buy the book, you guys. Let's agree to disagree. Thank you guys so much for coming on the Empire Files podcast and spending so much time breaking this all down. You guys rock. Thank you. Thanks, Abby. Our pleasure. You can learn more at projectcensored.org. 